Hello and welcome to School Growth Mastery, produced by Enrolled Hand. We help schools, preschools, colleges and universities find their voice, connect with their ideal parents and grow their enrollment. We will bring on a diverse list of guests from school heads, admissions officers, marketing experts, parents and more, each with a unique insight into how you should grow your school in this changing landscape. Thank you for listening. This is our first episode here at School Growth Mastery and we're joined by Grant Lichtman. Grant is an internationally recognized thought leader on the transformation of K-12 education. He works with school teams to develop comfort and capacity for change in a rapidly changing world. And you'll learn later on in this episode why both capacity and comfort are equally important. For almost 15 years, Grant was a senior administrator in one of the largest independent schools in the U.S. But since 2012... Grant has been visiting more than 125 schools and districts, and he's published three amazing books that we're going to talk about later on in this episode. Specifically, you are going to learn how market forces are shaping the K-12 school landscape, why schools now need a value proposition, how school leaders can find more time to differentiate and innovate. You'll learn about some examples of how a school can grow by crafting engaging learning experiences, You learn about what a school operating system is. And finally, where a school like yours should start. I hope you like this episode. Here's Grant. Hi, Grant. How are you today? I'm just fine, Andrew. Yourself? I'm great. I'm doing great. So thanks for for being with us and uh, with the members of our our group, uh, like a lot of school uh, leaders, I think, would be very interested in what you kind of have to say, so, and all your experience. So maybe you want to share just a, a couple of words about yourself, your your history, and what you're doing at the moment. Sure. Well, I have a little bit of a non-traditional background uh, in terms of school world. Uh, I have a bachelor's and master's from Stanford in marine geology, which led to uh, early career in the for-profit world. And uh, at a certain point in time, I followed my passions uh, into education uh, for about 14 years. I was a senior administrator, uh, trustee, wore a lot of different hats at a large independent school in San Diego, California. Uh, and for the last seven years, uh, since 2012, I have uh, been an author and consultant. I've worked with, visited and worked with, I think now something over 175 uh, schools and school districts, uh, public, private, charter, all around the country and somewhat around the world. And I guess the way that people describe uh, describe me, they, they say my unofficial title is Chief Provocateur, which is what I, I never want to give up. Uh, and I try to help school communities to build both uh, comfort and capacity for change. Uh, I've published a couple of books in the last two years, which I know we'll talk about. I'm working on a, a third one right now. So uh, yeah, I'm a lucky guy that <clears throat> does not any longer have a, a day job uh, tied to one school. I get to uh, work with uh, thousands of uh, educational stakeholders from students all the way up to senior administrators uh, and learn from them and, and then share uh, what they're doing that's working. That's amazing. That's amazing. And and you mentioned, I mean, a big part of, of what you do is, relates to change and, and kind of helping schools build capacity for change, you said. So how, how do you think, um, you know, change is happening? And I, I want to kind of specify the question a bit. Uh, 
to market forces because you know reading your books uh, there's a number of reference to market forces uh, and becoming more 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 important stronger in schools and you know I have one example I remember about the school in Rios that uh, was built for 700 students and you know dropped to 250 and then the principal really took it on herself and you mentioned to be a brand champion so you know what exactly is happening there what are how do you think of the market forces and uh, and how how do they relate to education today sure well uh, as we all know one of the major uh, drivers of school transformation across the country has been a really radical differentiation in the education marketplace over the last 20 years uh 20 25 years ago in most uh, areas of the united states 90 plus percent of students uh were going to their neighborhood public schools uh and now with uh with the charter movement with uh, district choice uh and then with the explosion of technology related virtual learning uh type of platforms we've seen a a radical differentiation of across the school market and the number of choices that uh families have with respect to their children's education and this differentiation is not uh, equal or the same in in every marketplace it's happening at different rates but i think in most places it it is happening and the and the rate of uh the rate of differentiation is is increasing in most uh places so uh with those uh increase in choices uh all schools uh not just schools that are charging for tuition but all schools as you mentioned Rio's elementary and the Cajon Valley uh district here near where I live if 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 families are deselecting from one public school to go to another uh, school because they have district choice then uh, individual site leaders and superintendents that don't want to see their uh, schools close are uh in a position now of uh seeking out and and securing uh future uh, customers uh, which really was not something that most schools had to worry about uh, 20 years ago so you mentioned customers and in your books you mentioned silicon valley and I mean, are schools businesses now? I know some school leaders aren't really comfortable with that analogy. I mean, do you think of them as businesses? And you know, if not, what's similar and what's not that similar to a business now? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to get over some of the semantics. Uh, businesses, uh, you know, to put it very simply, have been or, uh, businesses or organizations that provide goods and services. uh and for profit businesses do that uh in order to make a profit make a living and make a profit uh non profit businesses or non profit organizations do the same thing providing goods and services uh just without the expectation of returning a profit to the owners or the shareholders so uh, in in most ways schools have always been uh, a business uh the big dissimilar what is not similar uh, between schools and or most schools and what we traditionally think of as businesses is first of all uh there's not a profit motive our motivation for providing the service we provide is to do our best at educating young people to succeed uh, in their lot in their future lives uh so uh the big similarity of course for most schools has to do with the profit motive uh, or I'm sorry the big dissimilarity um but uh schools uh large and small uh, in most other respects 
uh, do operate uh, as a as other businesses do, and now with this rise of market differentiation, the similarity that we see today that didn't exist as much in the past is the need to justify our the individual value proposition of a site or a district or a modality of learning uh, to a sufficient number of customers uh, that they choose us over all the other options uh, that they have out there for their children. And so in that way, uh, we we are acting more like what we traditionally think of uh, as businesses. And you you talk about value proposition in your book. Uh, I think it's in Ed Journey where you you refer to it, maybe maybe also in in, uh, Moving the Rock, but how, how do you uh, think of like school value proposition? Well, you know, there are a lot of different definitions for value proposition. If you Google value proposition and you come up with lots of definitions, and I'm sure there are entire business school courses about this. So uh, I, I've, I've selected it, one of the definitions that I think works really well for schools. I do talk about it, I think, both in uh, my book, Hashtag Ed Journey, and in Moving the Rock. Uh, and it's frankly one of the key elements of what I'm writing about for my next book. Um, I think the best definition that I've uh, tried to get welded into educators' mind is um, your value proposition is very simply the difference between what you say you're going to do and what you actually do as viewed through the eyes of your customers. So there are three very distinct, very well-defined, clearly articulated, simple uh, clauses to that. Uh, What you say you're going to do, uh, what you actually do in terms of delivering on what you said you were going to deliver, and then seeing that uh, through the eyes of your customer. It's it's one thing uh, for us as a group of school uh, people, a a group of educators, administrators can get together, we can pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, we're really doing well with this. Uh, If our customers are not uh, seeing it the same way, then they're recognizing a a gap. So if a school is clear about what they're what they're trying to accomplish and they actually deliver on that and their customers experience that actual delivery, then the school's value proposition goes up. If there are gaps uh, in uh, amongst those three uh, elements of value proposition, then the value goes, perceived value goes down. You, you've traveled a lot for, for Hashtag Ed Journey. You traveled continuous for 89 days, right? Yes. It was a long drive, 10,000 miles around the country by myself. <laughs> Remind me, how many schools did you did you like visit? I visited uh, sixty four schools on that trip in 80, in eighty nine days, so it was a, a pretty uh, pretty fast pace. Uh, yeah, I imagine like a lot of those schools were were at like different phases with different gaps in their value proposition. I mean, some were more like uh, delivering uh, the value proposition uh, in uh, in a way that the customers seamlessly experienced it. And others probably didn't know what the value proposition was. So what's, you know, in your view and like for our listeners, what's, what's a winning mindset or a way to think about your value proposition from the people you met in your journeys and sure. visits? Yeah, well, there's so, there's, so many, there's so many elements of that. You know, uh, one could write an entire uh, book just about that. But, but one thing you mentioned is, is interesting. Uh, uh, six, five, six, seven years ago, the vast majority uh, of uh, educators who I came across uh, 
when I started using the terms value proposition to them, either uh, freely admitted uh, that they didn't know what the term meant or were not sure what their own school's value proposition is. Uh, I think that that has, there's been a dramatic shift in that over the last uh, very short period of time, uh, last half a decade. I think many, many more educators, and especially uh, those in titular leadership positions, uh, know what the words value proposition stand for and are are looking at that. So I think there's been a a seismic shift uh, in that in in a very short period of time. I think in terms of uh, mindset, two things uh, come to mind uh, when we talk about the mindset of leaders. The first one most educators are familiar with, and that's uh, Carol Dweck's growth mindset. We run across very few educators who have never uh, read Dweck and and have not had those conversations. So uh, just having a growth mindset, understanding that the world is changing and that uh, changing our organizations is something that we should be doing. And in fact, we should embrace and empowers us to be better at what we do. I think that's probably number one. Uh, the second one is interesting, and uh, I referenced the, the term architect leader. Uh, there was a fascinating study done in the UK several years ago, uh, brought to my attention by a, a gentleman, Tom Olverson, who's a great independent school leader, where a group studied schools in transition, uh, schools that were struggling for one reason or another, and they looked at various archetypes of school uh, leadership. I won't go into it all now. Uh, Your listeners uh, can, if you just Google, I just actually tried it. If you Google my last name and architect leader, uh, you come up with a blog post that I wrote on it and then some other great information. Essentially what they found was is that leaders that act more like architects are more successful at helping schools through periods of transition. So people who, like an architect, build for the long term are very inclusive of many different groups in creating uh, solutions as an architect would with plumbers and framers and electricians, etc. They work from a large palette of options. They don't go into solving a problem with a preconception about, you know, this is the only way to do it, but they have a large number of options. And the one I really like the best is, is that uh, good architects and good school leaders, uh, they don't fall in love with their first, uh, with their first idea about how to solve a problem. A good architect comes up with a with a sketch for a building, and usually that building, their first sketch is way over budget, and so they have to make value engineering decisions, and uh, good school leaders do the same thing. They don't fall in love with the first idea they come up with. They're willing to iterate, pilot, prototype, and uh, you know, work, work through it over time through lots of iterations. So I think those are some of the uh, common uh, mindsets that we're seeing are successful among schools. That's great. That's great. I think, you know, um, you mentioned like the first thing you talked about is people being aware and like embracing the change. I think the people in this, this group, they are there. I mean, being part of like, marketing and school growth, I mean, they're recognizing that things have to change. And I think a lot of them would like to, you know, they do have a growth mindset and they, they, they would like to have more of an like, architect leader uh, approach. Like, <clears throat> One thing that I, I hear a lot when I, I talk to them is the issue of time, and it's you know I, I think it's maybe like as they're here you know watching this and listening to this, the first <coughs> I want to address this first. The first thing that would be in their mind is okay, yeah, sure, I'd like to be planning things, I'd be testing different approaches to problem solving, but how do I find the time to do that since? 
I actually, you know, this, I have so much on my plate. I'm just going to grab the first solution that comes along, even if I'd love to be an architect. I'm just going to go with the first solution. I don't have the time. So how do you, in your travels, in your visits, how do you see school leaders addressing the issue of not having enough time in their day? You know, uh, so it is always the first issue that comes up. I've asked this question. Uh, I've asked a question to, I would say now, I, w- I don't want to say tens of thousands, but more than 10,000 uh, school I call it leaders, teachers, administrators. Uh, what's the one thing you wish you had more of? And I have never heard any word come out of anybody's mouth other than the word time. After they say that, they say, yeah, we'd like more money too. But the first word is, is always time. And so uh, time is, uh, is critical. So we can go into maybe a couple of examples. But the, I think one of the most impactful uh, results uh, of that crazy trip that I took around the country and that I write about in hashtag ed journey uh, is that uh, virtually every school I went to said, you know, exactly that we'd like to do that, but we don't have time to do X, Y, Z. And then I would get in my car and I'd drive across town or to the next town and visit the next school. And that school was doing X, Y, Z. And they said, gee, we just wish we had time to do A, B, and C, which was happening at the, at the school I was at the day before or the morning before. And so clearly, the time is not the, the, the issue. It's, it's about how we choose to use time and the structure around which we have built our schools, the daily schedule, et cetera. So there are many, many examples, uh, many more than I've ever been able to visit or could cite of schools that are using time, uh, are making choices about how to use time in order to uh, free up their teachers and their students in co-learning communities, co-learning experiences uh, that are different from those that are restricted by a rigid daily schedule of whatever it is, seven or eight, 48 or 52 minute periods. Uh, So I think the first thing is to get over the fact that the issue is time. It's not. It's about how we uh, have traditionally chosen to use time. And so so say that, you know, some of the listeners are open to, you know, reviewing, I don't know, the scheduling issues or the calendar, the school calendar, things like that. How how, can you give maybe one example of, of how how people would liberate time that way, say, you know, I know you're in favor of maybe larger blocks of like deeper learning activities. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one of the, one of the real keys is, is to uh, create larger blocks, which gives you more flexibility. Every time you take out a boundary of any kind in a school, whether that be a physical, temporal, or knowledge boundary, uh, you create more flexibility. Uh, so one of the examples I, frequently cite is Design 39 Campus uh, here in Poway Unified School District. You can, readers can Google Design 39, a K-8 public non-charter, straight public school, uh, 1,100 students uh, at the school. Uh, they formed their operating system around essentially three blocks of uh, time uh, during the day and were able to uh, carve out so that every teacher working within a cohort of uh, two grade levels, uh, all of those teachers have, it's either 50 or 55 minutes every day to meet with their cohort. Now, this is a union district, so their teachers are working the same number of minutes as every other teacher at the other 38 schools in 
Howie Unified, uh, but they have uh, carved out time differently to, to create that incredible uh, resource. So that's just one example of, of many. Uh, I've been writing recently in my blogs about a school, amazing school district that I visited just the last uh, uh, couple of weeks ago, the Harrisburg School District on the south side of Sioux Falls in South Dakota, uh, where they have parallel uh, personalized learning pathways uh, with uh, elementary and middle school uh, students uh, in those schools. Uh, and their students and teachers use time very, very differently in order to create truly uh, personalized learning experiences, again, in a, in a public school setting with the same standard uh, goals, the same student-teacher ratios that we see at most other public schools, the same funding levels, uh, and uh, the, the individuals in that school, uh, both teachers and students, are able to use time in a much, much more flexible and uh, more uh, learning-efficient ways than uh, schools that are built around the traditional uh, daily schedule operating system. And you mentioned the, the word operating system, which I found intriguing. I've started to hear it a bit more, but it's not a term we usually associate with schools. It's more of, it's like a system, like a, uh, I don't know, it's something, I think a new concept, at least in, in, in what I, I've heard. How does the operating system change? I mean, there's larger blocks of time. Is it because there's more independent work happening where, you know, the teacher as monitor or the teacher as controller is less, that, that, that you know, that function of the teacher is less required and therefore they have more time that way or is it something else that's going on? Well, uh, uh, it, it starts at a, at a at a fairly high level, and I appreciate the fact that you're hearing that use of the term operating system. Uh, somebody else may have used it before me, and uh, if so, I subliminally stole it from someone else, or because it came to me one day when I was on an airplane. Uh, it, it, it makes so much sense that schools. Uh, the, the the reason I started using the term Andrew is is that I I, ha- I had the sense that for decades, really for 150 years, we as members of educational communities have invested tremendous amounts of treasure, time, people, and money into what I would call changing the the hardware and software of schools. So buildings and technology and people and curricula and, and, and all those sorts of things. But that the fundamental operating system, if you think of the operating system like the operating system on a computer, uh, the operating system of the school has not been reimagined or rebooted in 150 years. So uh, the I, I would say that some of the, some of the major core elements of the operating system are, uh, we can think about it like this. We put students of a certain age into a certain physical space with a teacher for a certain number of minutes to learn a subject, uh, and then we sort of move them down the assembly line. So that's kind of the constraints of the operating system. Um, my good friend, Bo Adams, uh, at Mount Vernon Institute for Innovation at Mount Vernon Presbyterian School in Atlanta, uh, really, I think, was the first one that I saw that, that laid out even in more detail what some of the elements of, of the school system are, which would include pedagogy and instruction, the use of time, the use of physical space, uh, leadership, decision-making processes, things like that. So there is an operating system uh, that uh, that is defined by those sorts of sort of mega parameters, and that system has not been 
significantly restructured for 150 years. And that's where schools that are making significant changes are really, uh, they're recognizing that we need, you're you're not going to make a significant change unless you break or make a significant change to one of those big elements in how you operate every day. Uh, And so those are some of the big pieces that people are tackling when we talk about uh, project-based learning, interdisciplinary classes, teachers as co-learners, teachers as lead learners, changing the relationship between the teacher and the student, uh, changing blocks of time, opening up physical spaces, maker spaces, uh, innovation spaces, uh, you know, those are the those are the schools that really are starting to light it up in terms of a a much more relevant engaging experience for at the student level so just a couple of follow-up questions on that so you mentioned like so i think we we covered the 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 time aspect so say you know people start like school leaders start changing their operating system by the way i just heard that term again recently so i think it was following your use of it, it was on the Enrollment Spectrum podcast about a month ago. So I mean, you use it uh, uh, you know, in, your, in your books and further back than that. So that was just, that's why I said I'm starting to hear about it. So, um, but like changing spaces, maker spaces, when, when you hear that, uh, you think that's expensive. But you've actually seen a few, a few instances where that's not really expensive at all when schools that are not having a lot of funds are making these changes, right? Yeah, I would say that uh, creating a makerspace may be one of the least expensive things that a school can do because essentially, I mean, I've seen plenty of schools that just repurpose uh, an underutilized classroom and start filling it with resources that most of us find in our our waste bins or uh, leftover on job sites, things like that. So I would say that a a makerspace is probably the least expensive. Here's what I'll say, one thing I'll say about changing uh, spaces in classrooms. There are so many uh, inexpensive, extremely easy ways for us to change how we use physical space, whether it's with flexible furniture, with writable surfaces, both horizontal and vertical surfaces, uh, with, like you say, repurposing old space, maybe blowing out a non-load-bearing wall here and there to open up flexibility, bring in more light, more windows, things like that, uh, that are, are actually very much less expensive than building new buildings. But if the changes in space does not, uh, the changes in space usage do not result in the use of pedagogies that take, exa- take advantage of those spaces, then we're really just kind of wasting our time. I've talked with schools where they say, oh, we're, we're, we're going to have this great new innovation maker space. And they believe that innovation is about dropping a 3D printer in somewhere and letting kids go use a 3D printer once in a while. And that there's no there's no percolation of, of, of pedagogy that, that goes out to the rest of the school and 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 in other classroom settings and in other curricular units and things like that so I think it's very easy to say we're gonna you know be innovative by throwing in a maker space uh, it, it, it's not uh, also refer your your listeners to a gentleman who I've known for years Bob. Dillon, D-I-L-L-O-N, not spelled like the singer. Uh, Bob is a great uh, public school instructor. I've cited him in uh, Hashtag Ed Journey. And uh, he's really a specialist now in how to make uh, physical spaces really, really be a great uh, tool of leverage for what we would call deeper learning, uh, deeper learning environments. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what you say. I mean, I think that's why making these changes are inexpensive because the real changes are in are not in the spaces. I mean, those are those are company, the real changes which are in pedagogy. And and that's why you say these schools are lighting it up. I, I want, but I, I want to link that back to value proposition school growth, which is you know the, the, the primary interest of the group. And I think these schools that you're referring to, they are they are growing or they're shifting towards growth. But it's because they're lighting it up. It's because they're they're creating a more engaging uh, learning experience for their customers, right? Well, uh, it's a uh, there's a there's a, a chicken and egg uh, question embedded in that. Um, so I think the you know maybe the best way to say it is is that. Uh, schools that want to ensure that they have strong demand in the future. Uh, we can see that they are enhancing their value proposition. Their families are interested and excited and are, uh, in some cases, evangelical about uh, the experience that their students are having. So what are some of the common, there are lots of different ways to achieve that. And in fact, uh, in Moving the Rock, Thanks to some urging by my uh, editor uh, at my publisher, uh, you know, she really suggested that I put in a number of very, very specific ways that stakeholders can uh, help drive, uh, start and drive that interest in, 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 in growth at the school. And so, in fact, there's a whole chapter that I summarized, you know, what can students do, what can parents, teachers, uh, district uh, officials, uh, community stakeholders, there's just, there's so many, and these aren't things that just came out of my mind. These are things, you know, I got the evidence from looking at schools and districts all over the country, they're actually doing these things. So there's a lot of very tactical things that uh, people can be doing. But let me also mention, I think at a, at a more macro level, uh, there's a, there's a philosophy or a model uh, that a lot of businesses use. Uh, it's called the jobs to be done model. It is, it comes out of a very simple question. What is the job that we are being hired to do? Uh, and we being our school or our district, not me as necessarily as an individual, but we as a school, we as a district, what is the job that our customers are hiring us to do? Uh, and I'm not going to go into the whole uh, uh, drill down on that. Your, your listeners can, can look at that, and, and I've been sharing some about that uh, as well. But that's, that, that raises the, the key element, which is schools that are experiencing this growth and demand, whether they be public or private or charter schools, are schools that have recognized they have they have they empathetically understand the desires and needs of their customer base uh, in their marketplace uh, in ways that other schools uh, have left uh, have left open niches and they're providing uh, those they, they they understand their customer needs they're uh, creating experiences that fulfill those needs and they get people excited about being part of that particular uh, school. They understand the jobs that they're being hired to do and they're delivering on those. In, um, I can't remember which one of, in Moving the Rock, you mentioned um, an example of like a library uh, that used to have 400 visits a year and then when they turned it into a learning commons, it had 70,000 visits a year. And you can pick on that example or any other example you might think of, but how, how does that yeah, I mean, that, that was, huge change happen? How does that happen? I mean, 
Yeah, well, that was such a great example that came from uh, Albemarle County Schools. Uh, Pam Moran was the recently retired uh, superintendent of Albemarle County Schools. She told me that story where they essentially repurposed a library that really students weren't coming in because, you know, they aren't there to check out books any longer. And they repurposed it as a very dynamic, innovative uh, sort of combination, makerspace, coffee shop, uh, lots and lots of different things going on. Uh, I think off to one side, I think they even had their their music studio where students were able to uh, create create and publish their own music uh, out to the world. Uh, And so this is a, you know, this is a district that serves students uh, from a very wide range of demographics, uh, from the you know the the, the ivy covered walls of the University of Virginia in Charlottesville to some of the most underserved uh, parts of Appalachia, uh, and a lot of these were students that didn't that weren't they just weren't interested in school. Uh, uh, parents who wouldn't answer the phone call of a district uh, or or a site uh, person calling the parents to find out what was going on with their kid. And suddenly these were students that they wanted to stay at school later in the day. They were producing things. They were creating things. They were engaged and they found their learning more relevant because of what was what they were able to access and purpose in this in this uh, former library. And so suddenly you had uh, Pam says she had parents uh, saying, well, I've got another, I've got another child coming up. I want my kid to go to that school. I want them to go to, to the school where they're excited and fired up about their learning every day and, and don't necessarily want to leave in the afternoon as opposed to the more traditional setting. Well, you know, having something like that in your district is just a, is, is a model that, that excites interest. And then people start saying, wow, why can't we do this at school X and school Y uh, as well? So, so let's say, I mean, some, you know, the, the, the listeners of yours now, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. They're saying, yeah, I have, you know, I have to have a value proposition. I have to align. I have to actually understand what my customers want. They don't want the, the library anymore. They want their, you know, uh, learning commons with a cafe and like a music studio and all that. And if I, if I build that, nobody will come in and then the other kid will want to, to come. So say, can we understand that? But if you were like... Uh, a school head with loads of stuff on your plate, you're starting to think about time and, and delegating and stuff, but you still don't have, like, time is not an infinite resource. Where do you start? I mean, what's the first thing you do next week, next month, to get started on this path of creating value for your customers, listening to your customers? Yeah, well, th- this is where I think uh, leading schools are, and every, every school starts from a, a different place. Uh, the changes that schools want to see are going to be uh, are going to be different. Everybody's starting from a different place. I think we're generally starting to see convergence around what that better learning experience looks like. Uh, we we call it deeper learning now, and your listeners can Google deeper learning and look at the deeper learning network on my blog, uh, or sorry, on my uh, website. There's a, on my resources page. There's what I call the deeper learning cheat sheet, which are you know just unbelievably simple and free uh, hacks that will create uh, deeper learning. But uh, at, a, at an organizational level, when you're asking about, you know, how do we get this process started? Uh, I've been using a lot more of, and I've, I'm working with the Canadian Association of Independent Schools and in what we call a strategic change accelerator. There are, there are several sort of big tools about how to start and affect a strategic change. And the biggest and most impactful tool is what we call a Cotter or Cotter Plus. John Cotter is one of the real gurus of organizational change. 
for decades. And he has a marvelous little book uh, called, uh, is it My Iceberg is Melting or Our, Our Iceberg is Melting? It takes about 45 minutes to read. It's a fable about penguins. And uh, it, it's, it lays out the steps, time-tested, proven steps of how to start and implement organizational change. I think I and others uh, were starting to interpret uh, this uh, tool through the lens of schools uh, and, and, and recognition of, of the time issues, the resource issues that schools share. It's not, you know, changing schools is not the same as changing a Silicon Valley startup, but some of the steps, some of the methods are similar. And so there are good uh, models for how uh, to do this, um, but how to do it within a school setting, I think, is why folks, why I get to work with schools and other folks who are converging around this fairly simple set of uh, tools. Another another good uh, tool that's in that toolkit, uh, if your listeners Google uh, my last name and Innovation Stairway, they'll come up with a graphic that, uh, again, has been adopted from work that goes back at least until the 1980s, if not earlier, that it pretty clearly and simply identifies what are the elements that you have to have in place in an organization for change to be successful and what are the possible stumbling blocks to avoid. So implementing those is, is not, is not uh, simple, uh, it's, it, but it takes stick-to-itiveness and it takes a sustained commitment, but the, the tools of how to change a school are something we're not inventing right now. We're reimagining effective tools within the language and experience of schools. Okay, that sounds interesting. So I think what, what, what I'd like to do now for, uh, for uh, our elite group of schools is maybe dig into some of the examples of your book on, on how to really take a step forward. So you have some very nice actionable examples in, in both books, but I'm thinking of moving the rock right now. And I will be, you know, under this video, I'll be listing um, links to, to both your books. I'll be listing links to your, your blog and website. And I don't know uh, what else you, you like. Is, is those the main places someone should should reach you? Is it also Twitter, or should I just prefer the blog and and, and uh... Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I'm my Twitter is at Grant Lichtman, and I generally respond to tweets very quickly. All of my contact information is on my website, and yeah, I share as much as I can. Through my blog, uh, there are a number of resources of uh, videos and articles uh, I've written similar to this. Hopefully, I'll be able to post this on on, on my resources at some point. So, yeah, th- that's the best point of contact for people. But I, I share as much as I can in, in my books and in my blogs, and it's a good starting point. Great. So, I list all that so people. Great. Thank you for listening to School Growth Mastery, brought to you by Enroll Hunt. If you like what you heard, please do subscribe to our show and share this episode with your fellow educators. You can support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or your preferred podcasting app. That way more school leaders like you will find us. If you want to learn more about school growth, visit our website at enrollhand.com and please do check out the links in the show notes of this episode. Until next time, goodbye for now.